0: Namo Aitasa Bhagavatu Vahatua Sammasambhutasa Namo Aitasa Bhagavatu Vahatua Sammasambhutasa Namo Aitasa Bhagavatu Vahatua Sammasambhutasa Budang Damang Sangam Namasami so one of the um, traditions that have come from the uh, monastic tradition, or at least the tradition that I'm familiar with, is in before giving a, a talk. In the it, there's a, a this chanting, and this chanting um, has a particular purpose. Like the, all the chanting has a particular purpose, and this particular purpose is just to signal that. Um, this is not the same as kind of ordinary chit chat or Q and A or just hangout time. This is a special kind of talk, yeah. And so it's a it's an indication or a signal that this is a special time, and to bring a lot of care and attention to what is happening. And as a result of that, you know, there's so somebody was asking how many rules, and I've got a lot of rules, and some of the rules are the circumstances under which it's suitable to speak on the Dhamma. And so for this reason, people are encouraged not to write and not to drink and to be sitting upright as a way of bringing uh, the full attention of your body and mind together so that you can really um, listen in a way where if what is said resonates with you, there's, there's the possibility of really getting uh, clear. So, you know, in the time of the Buddha, there were many circumstances where, just listening to discourses, people's minds opened up. And they opened up because they were attentive and receptive to what was going on. So the culture, a monastic culture, is set up to support the maximizing of making good use of the dhamma it's not you know for me i have i have zero interest in being a buddhist nun like to me that's like not interesting but what is interesting is the way in which it conduces to liberation and the way in which it holds a container that supports others to do the same thing that is interesting okay so to be religious, it's like, "Oh." <laughs> 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 to be awake? Yes. You know? Big difference. Yeah. So one is an identity. One is an awakening. So all this stuff about you know what seems like it doesn't make much sense, when you look at it from the perspective of the kinds of things that can support waking up, it's helpful. So for these kinds of reasons, I'd like to invite full attention with your body. Relaxing in a way, full attention with your body, so that when you're listening, you can bring so much attention into your body you can really get a sense of whether what you hear resonates with you as being true or not. Yeah? Because you'll know if it's true your body will tell you. You don't have to try and figure it out. Your body will register. And similarly, if it's not true if what I say doesn't resonate you know that your body will also tell you. You don't have to worry about it trying to figure it out. Yeah? So the kind of situation is set up so that, this, that it's simplified, people are upright, attention is focused, not doing different tasks, so that one can be completely present with what's being said. So, you know, we've all survived a day and, you know, we get five stars because it's hard on the first day of a retreat to settle in. You know, it's a new place, a new venue, there's new foods, there's new routines, there's new people. You know, for some it was actually quite challenging coming for a bunch of different reasons. And people have got different things going on, and so for some it was scary and challenging to be here. And so, you know, really a lot of kudos to you for making the effort for coming, for showing up, for staying, and for working with the the kind of edges that come up. And for most people, a first day of retreat has some edges in it. You know, as we're transitioning from Mach 5 of our ordinary life into Reverse 3, you know, it's a big transition. You know, the speed is different, and the amount of impact is different, and, you know, even though there are a lot more things on the table and on the bulletin board than I have mostly seen on retreats, it's still not very much compared to the kinds of emails and texting and telephone calls and conversations that we're normally having. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a big transition to go from our ordinary world where there's such an enormous amount of input and impact into a retreat context in noble silence where we're spending hours a day in contemplation with what's arising. It's not what we normally do. And so in an ordinary circumstance, you know, when anything is uncomfortable, we have all of our little strategies that we can do to distract ourselves or to um, self-comfort. And many of those strategies are not so readily available here, you know. And so we're left with the discomfort of having to be with what is without the strategies that we're used to to placate or to nourish or to comfort or to distract. And it takes courage. It takes courage to be with the mind as it's settling and finding its own rhythm and coming into uh, a sense of, of, of relaxation and energetic alertness, relaxed alertness in a new environment. And then there's all these different people here, and you've got all kinds of different histories with each other, and for some this is a really safe place, and for others it's a little bit of a challenging place. And so there's all the human dynamic as well, where, you know, in our normal houses and homes, we've got the front door that we can close and we can lock, and we can make clear decisions about who we invite in and when. And on a retreat, it's whoever shows up. You know, it's not according to any any individual person's preference. And for some, that's a real joyful thing, and for others, it's a little bit scary, you know, not knowing who's going to show up. So all of this is present on a retreat, and, you know, we get to work with it. So one of the um, things that I, struck me tonight when we were doing the chanting, you know, was the, the, the qualities of the Buddha, You know, the first quality of the Buddha that was delineated was not his extraordinary wisdom or his phenomenal compassion. It was his skillful conduct. Did you notice that? I don't know. I mean, I've read this, I've done this chanting a gazillion times, and it's the first time that I've actually noticed that the first quality that was spoken about was his skillful conduct. And so you can see, you know, in, in talking about, you know, somebody who's awake, who's clear, you know, one of the first manifestations of that is that they're living with integrity. And the way that they're living is not causing harm or confusion to the people around them. But it's also very clear in terms of doing what is necessary and not doing what's not necessary. And so when you look at, you know, the life of a monastic or the life of a renunciant, part of the lifestyle is designed around to hone attention into what's necessary and give us a really clear shape or box to explore what's necessary and what's not necessary. And I see, you know, in our contemporary world, with a lot of the choices that are available to a lot of people, because there's so much choice, then it's not often the case that people can use that choice for exploring what's really necessary because people get habituated to being able to do what they want in order to feel comfortable, rather than to what's actually really necessary. And so, you know, taking up shapes or boxes that have a little bit more um, discipline in them or opportunities for reflection or choices around renunciation, they're not meant as kind of like ascetic torture chambers, you know? Renunciation is not meant to be a life of deprivation. The purpose of it is is actually to be able to focus on what's really necessary so that our attention can move there and so that our hearts can open. So the irony about renunciation is, is that it's blissful. Now, most people would not put those two things together, that renunciation is blissful. But that's actually what happens is that when your mind is honed in and focused in on what's necessary, then your heart can open. And when your heart opens, that's what you experience is bliss. Yeah. So we have different kinds of ways of holding the teachings. And, you know, one of the ways of holding the teachings is the the understanding of importance of generosity, the importance of integrity, the importance of concentration, all as a way of supporting cultivation. So when we come on a retreat, especially on the first day of a retreat, you know, some people didn't sleep so well last night, we've got different people with different mobility issues, we've got somebody who hurt themselves dealing with pain, and all of a sudden quite a shift of mobility, you know, takes a lot of generosity of the heart to meet all the stuff that arises in a way where there's care and respect, rather than just trotting out the same old kind of thing that we're used to, which is to push and to berate and to hammer and to hash and to thrash and to slander and to not really pay very attention and then to criticize and to shame. You know, the normal things are really easy to come up with in a situation where we're challenged and sometimes it's not comfortable. And it's inevitable if we're sitting for more than, you know, five consecutive minutes that we have an opportunity to feel things that are uncomfortable. Whether our body starts aching or we're not sure what we're doing or we feel a sense of, you know, sleepiness and we don't think we should or we want to feel something different, you know, we're not sure quite exactly what's going on or How come nuns do all these weird things? And you know, whatever's going on, you know, it's the stuff that comes up in the mind is not always comfortable. Our bodies ache, you know. They're not used to sitting for forty-five minutes, hour after hour after hour after hour. And you know, we're not used to walking and just staying with walking. We're used to walking in order to go somewhere, in order to get something done, in order to be productive. And so it's a shift, and in shifting gears, you know, there's opportunity for all kinds of stuff to arise. And, and I would imagine that if we took a vote, you know, most people are not likely to have been in bliss and rapture all day long. That's my guess. It's <laughs> just a guess. <laughs> but That's my guess. And so, you know, we have all of this stuff. Yeah, and so a generosity of the heart, the willingness to connect and access our own goodness is something that's really important that we have as ballast when we're dealing with the kind of gritty you know, stuff that comes up, that we actually can feel the, the goodness of our intention, the goodness of our, of our aspiration, that we can sense that there is some value in not just following thoughts and habits and patterns that there's actually something more nourishing that we have readily available to, but we don't always have easy access. It's here, but we don't always know how to, to touch it, to reach it. Yeah. So generosity, the, uh, the capacity to bring forward deliberate acts of kindness is a, is a support that gives us ballast for being here. And people who practice generosity, oftentimes, when they come on retreat, then they, they have that to work with the stuff that comes up. You know? And so, you know, things go well, they don't go well. But there's that quality of being able to access one's own goodness that gives us the ability to work with what's arising in a way where there's more space. Now, generosity doesn't mean that you give a million dollars every minute of the day. It means that you can show up with presence, with time, with interest, with attention. It means that you can give some things not just in terms of financial support, but also in care. You know, generosity has many different kinds of expression. But when we cultivate a life of generosity, where we deliberately practice being generous... It creates a whole big kind of resource that we can tap into. And that resource is really evident when we show up on retreats. Because, you know, many people are a little bit agitated, a little bit restless, a little unsure. And the mind and body are switching gears from high speed to retreat speed. And to have that as a ballast then just gives support for navigating all of this that comes up. It comes up, it comes up, it comes up, and it comes up no matter how many years you've been meditating. No matter how many years you've been on retreat, it still comes up. You know? But when there's the ballast, then it comes up and there's very little agitation around it. Just normal. This is what the first day of a retreat feels like. It's just like this, it's normal. Generosity and integrity create a context where our mind isn't dwelling in regret about the stuff that we've done that's been harmful or injurious or divisive or slanderous. Or, you know. So it was curious to me, the first thing I noticed of all of the qualities of the Buddha was this, that he was of impeccable conduct and behavior. You know, He lives in the world in a way where there's just no ripples out from his side in terms of the impact that he's having and the way that he's walking and the way that he's interacting with people. Just clear, straightforward. And when we live like that, you can see, you know, people around you trust you. Animals around you trust you. You know, and and as a result of being trusted, there's an interest for people to come near. He's interested in speaking to you or being friends and that there isn't the kind of regret of oh I did something that was wrong or I I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have said that you know not out of self-doubt because self-doubt is not just a level of integrity that's another particular something that we in our western world have to navigate you know but regret because there was genuine a sense of, of an intention that wasn't kind or harmless. So generosity and integrity then create pillars, and the pillars are supportive for concentration. And not long ago I heard this metaphor or story that one of the forest meditation masters uses. But if you've got a stream that's very wide, and you want to make a bridge across it. You know, the first pillar that they sink down on the earth is pretty straightforward. You know, the earth is there, they can sink it in, it's not so hard. The pillar on the other side of the river also isn't so hard. The pillar that's challenging is where the stream is running. To actually sink the pillar into the earth in the middle of the deep current and the deep water. And so, concentration is like this, where we're trying to gather in, collect in, settle in, bring in. We're trying to allow our attention to focus in. Not because there's something wrong without, because when we focus in, we can see things clearly And when we see things clearly, we can come into a completely different relationship with what's going on. When things are a blur or scattered or all over the place, we're doing ten things, we're not doing anything with clarity. Even if we're doing two things. We're not doing two things with clarity, usually. You know how many people can eat and read and taste your food at the same time? We can put food in our face... We can swallow it, but we're not tasting it, we're not chewing it, we're not digesting it properly, we're not actually present with the food, because our mind is focused on what we're reading. So to gather in and to begin to slow down and to begin to just do one thing at a time, to begin to move through the morass of distraction and obsession with thinking, And to connect with our body is to drop the pillar through the rapid stream. You know, the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions. What am I supposed to do? What am I not supposed to do? Who's here I feel comfortable with? Who's here I don't feel comfortable with? What are the instructions? How does it make sense with the other instructions I've already heard? What are we supposed to do in the silence? Are we supposed to do the meditation we did before? Are we supposed to continue with the one we're doing now? What are we supposed to do? So all the thinking and all the thoughts and all the concerns can come up. And what's needed is to meet what's there and to drop in, to gather in, to collect in attention into our body where we start to feel and sense and open and relax and let our body be something that supports our intuition about how we move forward with our meditation. What's needed right now? Well, when I feel myself tight, what's needed right now is to notice the tightness. And when I notice the tightness, then I can relax, open. And sometimes it's not a big, huge thing. It's a very subtle thing, just a slight movement. And the slight movement can shift the tension, the tightness, the pulling, the contraction, the efforting, the feeling like I have to make it happen just the uh, tender the anxiety of not sure, not sure, not sure, not sure, not sure, not sure. And then when I relax into not sure, oh, I'm not sure. It's like this. And so what was anxiety producing and gripping in one instant just becomes an object of awareness in another instant. The reactivity releases... But when I'm not attentive to my body, when I'm not listening to my body, I miss it. And when I miss it, the agitation causes thinking, and the thinking drives motivation, and the motivation drives action, and I'm off running on a something, because I wasn't clear enough to catch the... that preceded it all. The uncertainty, the discomfort of not knowing... Sinking the pillar into the stream, into the fast-moving current, with our habits and our thoughts and our reactions and our wanting and our not wanting and our wanting to be comfortable and our not wanting to be uncomfortable or wanting to be sure, our not wanting to be with uncertainty, wanting to get it right. Sinking the pillar into the fast-moving stream to come into contact with our own body, Feel the feet on the earth. Notice our hand on the doorknob. Slowing down. To be in pace with what's going on. To catch what's going on. And to respond skillfully to what's going on rather than to react habitually to what's going on. When we are able to sink the pillar into the fast moving stream. And our mind and body start to come together. We start to coalesce. There's a coherence rather than a disparateness where we feel like we're being pulled in ten different directions at the same time. And in that coherence, there's much more resource to be with what's arising, to be with the restlessness or the uncertainty or the hunger for pleasant feeling or the wanting unpleasant feeling to go away are enjoying the beauty of this place and the warmth of the sun and how lovely it is to be outside without having to spend 15 minutes putting on clothes and boots and gear before you open the door. You can just walk outside, even barefoot. And so to be present for what's going on, without lost in what's going on. Swimming in what's going on, drowning in what's going on, is what happens when we sink the pillar through the fast running current and come into coherence with our body and our mind. So the foundations of mindfulness are set up as a support to be with what's going on. And to give us more tools on how to work with what's going on. And so if we experience our body as uncomfortable, we can shift from the first foundation of mindfulness to the second foundation of mindfulness, and just be with the discomfort as an unpleasant object of mind. And the big story around it can release if all's we're with is an unpleasant object of mind. It's unpleasant. and unpleasant feels like this. But being with the beauty is pleasant. And pleasant feels like this. We don't have to get lost in it. We don't have to dissolve into craving it. We don't have to bring that into the center of our mandala and stake claim to it. We can just know it's pleasant. And pleasant feels like this. And in that way, it nourishes, but it doesn't drain, because there's no reactivity, there's no residue. To be absolutely present with the warmth of the sun, with no residue of wanting it to be any other way, or last longer. So the first foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the body, which we can experience in our physical posture. We can experience in our breath. We can experience in sensations. We can experience it in the elements. We can experience it in the parts of our body. We can experience it by contemplating the different stages of death. This is what happens to a body. And being grounded in the body gives us capacity to work with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And the second foundation of mindfulness gives us the context for working with the things that arise in our mind. Wanting. Not wanting. A big, huge story. Don't want to know. Get me out of here. This is nuts. Why did I sign up? These are all things that arise in the mind: fear and confusion, and desire, and aversion, and frustration, and agitation, and depression, and anxiety. And it's not to diminish or to di- di- or to or to make little out of the 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 potency of what has given rise to these things, but to hold them in a way where the burning embers can begin to start to cool, the gripping can begin to start to release. where We can relax a little bit more in our own skin. Agitation is not the whole story. It's something that's arising in the present moment. It passes. So the foundations of mindfulness give us tools to work with what's arising and perspective so that we can see things the bigger view. So I took time over the lunch break and went down to see all the different furry people and feathered people and, and floaty people And I like all the different people. I like to see them. It makes me happy. And then I read the names and, you know, the story of each one. And You know, many of them were raised as pets and, you know, people not understanding that a bobcat doesn't make a good pet. You know, so they're trying to turn it into a house cat and it doesn't work so well. And so, you know, then what happens? And so what happens is is that the cat comes to the nature center and can't be released back into the wild because of what happened. So I like to see and then I feel sad. You know, people in their lack of knowing have done things that have impacted this creature and it's gonna impact them for the rest of their life. You know. So sad. And I was hearing the chainsaw today and, you know, I don't know why they were chainsawing today. But the other day I was hearing that, you know, you had some really incredible ice storms. And with the ice storms, a lot of trees came down. And so, you know, it's the weather is warming and people are starting to pick up the pieces from the impact of the winter. And clear the ground, open up the paths, make it possible for people to walk again. And so even though there's the weather that's so glorious, around is signs and and, and um, possibilities that have come from the way that we live in relationship with the earth and the creatures on the earth it's right here even on a glorious day it's right here So the practice tells me that you know these things that are right here are important to open to, not to push away. And to respond with care and kindness and respect. Not to pretend that they're not happening. And to see if in opening up, with wisdom and skill and compassion and bringing forward as much clarity as can be mustered. There's a wise, heartfelt response that can emerge. What's that? What would be a wise, heartfelt response to seeing a bobcat that's going to have to stay in a cage the rest of its life? For me, it's to just be as present as I can in the moment. And to accept the feelings that come. The beauty of seeing this exquisite creature. The sadness of recognizing what's going on. And the appreciation for the community here that's created habitat for them to live or supporting them. Rich mixture. if I notice that I get lost or carried away by thoughts or worry or anxiety, just to come back into what's happening with my body. Am I tense? Can I allow alignment and balance to support relaxation? Do I need to breathe in a slightly different way rather than leaning forward Can I just be upright, rather than contracting? Can I just open? And if I can't open, can I be with not being able to open? Can I accept that I can't open? Dropping the pillar into the fast-moving stream is to gather. To gather so that we can become cohesive, not dispersed, so that we can bring the whole of our body, heart, and mind to what's arising, so that we can begin to see the difference between what is reactive and what is responsive, what is habitual and what is coming from wisdom and kindness and compassion. What is life-affirming, what is not. Generosity gives us access to our own goodness. That goodness helps support our ability to live with integrity and to meet what arises. Our capacity to live with integrity supports gathering in, dropping the pillar through the fast-moving stream. Concentration helps us focus, see, and respond. So, a lot of really beautiful effort has come together to make this retreat possible. And everyone has made a lot of effort to get here. And we don't have that much time, just a few days together. So choose wisely how you spend this time. There isn't going to be another first day, I promise. And the efforts that we've made today will support our inquiry tomorrow. So just make really wise choices about how you spend the time. And as as lovely as it is to spend time together with friends here, really check out and see if that's the best way of spending your time, if that's the most supportive thing to do, not to cause shame or a sense of doing it wrong if that's the choice that you make, but really to see if your wisdom is congruent with that. Because when we drop in, when we sink that pillar through the fast-moving stream, start to see clearly the kind of richness of what we can bring to our friendships is huge. So I'd like to pause here and um, change gears and just sit quietly for a couple of minutes and digest what was said and then close with some chanting. Okay? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.